the ways we make ourselves unhappy. And the um, premise of the talk is that um, our, our natural state is happiness. Um, and that uh, it is only things that we believe that aren't actually true that pull us away from that. Yeah, we believe them, we act on them, reinforces our belief, and around and around we go. Um, so uh, it seems like it's useful uh, to really look at what that mechanism is. Um, you know, if, if we become aware of the mechanism, then it, it loses its grip. Um, what keeps it in place is the um, sort of unawareness of how it's operating. Um, because it's something that we've learned, all of us, whatever the particular ways that we get caught, um, you know, things that sort of pull us into, you know, unhappiness or some variation of that. Um, so it doesn't have to be sort of grievous suffering. It can be just little things as well, but it's the same mechanism. I mean, if we can see it in the little things, you know, we have a better chance of seeing it in the big things, vice versa. So it can be, you know, long-term patterns or it can just be things that crop up on a daily basis, things that sort of, you know, sort of catch us, you know, sort of pull us into a, a reactive kind of space, you know, where we're annoyed or angry or recall something. So we, we can um, talk about, I mean, there's more than 10, but we can talk about 10. <laughs> you get a pretty good idea of what, where it's going. But, um, um, and I think the reason that, e even though this isn't like um, hardcore spirituality, it's, it's relevant in that um, any of these things can, you know, sap our energy, you know, sort of, um, you know, um, you know, just take us, take us for a ride. And uh, that's not necessarily in itself a bad thing because every time that happens, that level of, of uh, contraction or suffering or annoyance or however we want to characterize it um, is actually an opportunity. It's actually a pointer. So, um, you know, it's like suffering is always a pointer, you know. And... Um, the, the usefulness is uh, not to miss that opportunity. You know, it's not, the idea here isn't perfection. It's not like, well, I gotta try really hard never to make that happen. Um, but it's, it's, it's really when it does happen um, to say, oh, okay, here's, here's uh, you know, it's not something I just wanna push aside or run away from. It's, it's like, okay, here's, here's an opportunity to, to see something that I may not have seen before, or I may not have seen it completely, or uh, it's just another opportunity. So if we look at it from that sense, then we have an opportunity to learn from it. Um, you know, if we see it as something that shouldn't be happening, then, then we sort of block that, you know, because we, we're suddenly opposed to it, and, you know, it doesn't go anywhere from there. Um, so that's, that's one reason to look at it. The other reason is that, um, you know, even um, if we've gone down the 
um, path a long way into you know recognition recognition of our true nature, recognition of consciousness or awareness, um, we can still be pulled back into it. And um, if, if we have a sort of a case of spiritual pride, you know, it can be easy to say, well, that shouldn't be happening, right? Um, you know, something's gone wrong and, uh, you know, we can go down that mental road. So, um, but again, if we see th that uh, even though we may have seen um, quite deeply into our true nature, it doesn't mean uh, that on a human scale we can't um, get hooked sometimes. Um, so it, it's useful to see it in that way that one, you know, just because we've seen that doesn't mean, well, I'll never get hooked again, you know. You can almost feel the pride in that, right? <laughs> the arrogance in it. <laughs> I have to use my crib sheet, otherwise I never remember all these. Um, okay. Um, okay, first one is being right. Okay. So um, you can sort of feel into that, you know, like that, that it's the certainty of my opinion, you know, I, I know I'm, you know, something happened and I know I have the right perspective on it, I have the right, you know, way of thing, how things should be, you know, I'm interacting with another person, but I, I know I'm right, you know. You know, it's sort of like, hey, it's my opinion and if I can't trust my own opinion, well, whose who's opinion are, am I going to trust? <laughs> I remember when I, I went to college, there were um, a lot of people there that were a lot more sophisticated than I was, and one of the things I noticed is almost everybody had really clear, strong opinions about, about everything, you know? And I was just some public school kid, and, and uh, I, didn't have, I didn't have many, any opinions, you know? I didn't, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, Somebody, somebody stumbling out of the backwoods and not knowing anything, and all these people all had opinions, really strong opinions about everything, <laughs> politics, you know, everything. So this, this sense of being right, you know, has, has a certain, like, you know, there's a, a certain uh, assertiveness there that, and one of the consequences of that is that the implication is that the other person's wrong, right, when you're talking to them. And, I mean, you can do that in a friendly kind of way, you know, like, uh, you know, if you like chocolate ice cream better than vanilla, you're just deluded. I mean, it can be done in a lighthearted way, but, um, and it can also be done in a serious way if you're having, a, you know, an honest, um, you know, sort of business-like discussion or scientific discussion that, you know, w where you can genuinely disagree with somebody. Um, um, you know, but that can be done respectfully, right? It's not like you're, you're disrespecting the other person. You're just, um, you know, you're maintaining that level of respect, but just talking about um, different ideas, different approach, okay? But it's different when there's a, that sense of um, assertiveness, you know, certainty that goes with it. Like, I know I'm right, and I am going to, 
um, stick with that no matter what, even if it costs our friendship, you know. Um, and you can see it happening in politics these days, right? You know, so people put, you know, opinions over family relationships and friendships, etc. So what becomes more important is the concept rather than the, the person, the concept rather than the, you know, the relationship with another, you know, manifestation of life that you happen to be talking to. So that's, that's the, that degree of certainty that goes with that. Um, and in some ways, that, that level of being right, um, you know, there's, there's um, you know, one of the payoffs of it is that you don't really have to consider the other person's opinion. You don't really have to listen to them. You don't have to get involved in the nuances of it. Um, you know, you don't have to consider, well, maybe they, they have a point here. Um, you know, if we, to the extent that we practice that, um, it's like, you know, we don't have to um, get involved in those nuances. We can just stick with our opinion and, um, you know, if we do it forcefully enough, then we win the argument, right? So, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we can be expressing opinion, somebody expresses another opinion, and then we go to, um, you know, sort of an emotional supercharge there and add in an element of um, anger or disdain or dismissiveness or, you know, something to amp up your position. And, um, you know, that, it, it just creates that separation. So we, even, even when you're, you know, just having a normal conversation with someone and, um, you know, if, if we drop into that sense of certainty about being right, um, the other person can feel that and there's, there's, you can actually feel the disconnection, a point where that connection, uh, that sort of undercurrent um, gets cut. You know, suddenly you feel, you feel the other person sort of backing away. And um, I mean, that's the consequence of being right with assertiveness. Right. So um, it's, it's just something that we can notice when we have that level of certainty um, is, is to maybe back off a little bit, you know, and just um, see that they're, you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing it from a certain perspective. I'm seeing it conceptually, right? Because I'm focused on that idea rather than the actual personal co connection. And, um, and see that that has consequences, right? Depending on how, how far we take this being right thing, right? If, it, if we take it far enough, we fly planes into buildings. You know, it's the same. It's the same movement. It's just, you know, one's just a. It's just a matter of degree, right? Okay, moving right along here. Um, blaming others, right? So the the thing about blaming others for whatever, you know, some lifelong 
you know, incident that happened maybe decades ago, you know, that we haven't quite, um, but we're still holding on to that resentment or hatred or uh, unforgiveness or whatever it is. Um, you know, we, we, th we hold on to it because, well, we know that they were in the wrong and, and we weren't, right? So there's that, um, there's that sense of, you know, it just wouldn't be right just to let it go. You know, it's somehow there's an assumption built in there that, you know, I'm the Lord of karma and, you know, if I let it go, you know, who knows what'll happen. <laughs> so somehow we feel, we feel justified in hang, hanging on to that. But the, I mean, the actuality of it is that the, the person that is suffering as a result of our hanging on to it is ourself, right? You know, so we, we get to suffer maybe, maybe for decades for something that, where we blame somebody else for and, um, you know, we're just not willing to let them off the hook. The other thing that blaming the other person does is that it, it's outward looking, right? It's their fault, I'm the victim, nothing I can do, they were in the wrong, I'm suffering, they're to blame for my unhappiness, right? So we've, we've given away the key to our emotional well-being to the other person. They've done it to me and I'm just the victim here. So, but the, the truth of it is that um, no one else can ever make us unhappy. They, they can do whatever they want. We may not like it, but um, the choice um, uh, to, you know, fall into anger or hatred or unhappiness or despair or hurt or depression or all of that is our own choice. If we, if we give that authority over to the other person, they, they're the ones in control of our emotional experience. It's like, I mean, just the bumper sticker, you know, happiness is an inside job, you know. The, the trigger may happen outside, you know, and, and that's something we don't have any control over. You know, the other person may say something that's offensive, may say something that, you know, is insensitive, um, may some, say something that's politically or, you know, socially incorrect. We, we have n no control over that. If we, if we give them control over our emotion, then, then they're holding the, the loop end of the leash. Right? So what we can do is, is just see that um, our, our reactivity um, is something that 
is within our control. And when it gets out of hand, you know, if we respond with anger, whether it's expressed or just happens internally or um, disgust or whatever, whatever the sort of contractive emotion is, we can just look and see, okay, there, there it is. That's something that I'm, um, I have the belief that they shouldn't have said that or done that. And, um, and I know, and that reactivity is justified. Okay. But we're, we're still the ones that suffer for it. You know, we suffer from, you know, that bout of um, anger, hatred, or, you know, whatever the, whatever the emotion is. Um, so that, that we do have a choice about, and we can, we can relinquish that um, to another person, but we don't have to. Um, so the pointer there is when we find ourselves reacting to the other person, whatever it is, then, you know, we can look and see what the, what the root of that is. So it doesn't mean that we don't respond. Uh, I mean, we can respond as whatever is appropriate to the situation. Um, but the, the, the difference is between response and reactivity is, is the level of contraction within ourselves. You know, if we respond to the situation, it's done with. You, you've responded appropriately. The other person may or may not hear it, may or may not agree with it. Um, that, that's out of your control. But what's in your control is to respond as best as we can in that moment. Um, but if we find ourselves carrying it, carrying the emotion, you know, hours, days, weeks, decades afterwards, then that's on us. Um, so again, that's, that's the pointer. The suffering is a pointer to look at what we're believing should or shouldn't have happened. Any, actually, any time you hear the S word, um, it's, it's, it's something, to, it's like a red flag. Okay, look here, okay? And the looking here is always here, not, not the other direction. <laughs> um, I mean, even, even if you can say, well, it's, you know, 90% their, you know, their fault, fault and, you know, only 10% mine, so look at the 10%, you know, that's what you have control over, not the 90%. Okay, moving right along here. Um, I'll be happy when... Okay, so um, maybe when we were younger, it was like, uh, well, I'll be happy, you know, if and when, you know, he'll ever go out with me. You know, I'll be happy when I graduate and get a job, or I'll be happy when, you know, I have kids. You know, whatever, whatever the future event is. L later on, it might be, um, you know, I'll be happy when I get the divorce. I'll be happy when I retire. <laughs> you know, I'll be happy when the kids go off to school. <laughs> you know, but it's, and it, it could even be, you know, just um, not even long term like that. You know, we can notice it just, you know, you know, just during the day. You know, like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be happy when dinner's ready. 
you know, I'll be happy when the dishes are done. <laughs> you know, I'll be happy when the guests come over. You know, I'll be happy when the guests leave. You know, it's like, you know, it's always like just the next, next thing. You know, it's like, but the implication there is, you know, I'm not really that happy now, but when some future event happens, then, then I'll be happy. You know, the problem is when, you know, the, you know, the future event happens, you know, there's always the next thing. You know, it's always sort of pushed push back into the future somehow. Does that make sense? That's, that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> okay. Um, wanting more. So it's like that we, we look to the outside for, you know, objects that we sort of bring into our field or experiences or um, um, thoughts and ideas. Um, and um, we look towards those as the source of, of happiness. Right, that'll, that'll be, bring me pleasure when I, when I buy that or when I move into that house or when I have this relationship or when I have this job or, you know, something when I, when I brought it into my field of possession, I'll, I'll, that I'll be happy. Um, there's, only, there's only two problems with that. One, one is that we have this hope of wanting something and it doesn't happen, right? A lot, a lot of things that we've hoped would happen didn't, didn't quite turn out that way. So that's, that's one problem with this wanting more. The other problem is we do get what we want. <laughs> we get what we want, but it doesn't quite turn out as good as we thought it would you know, or it doesn't last as long as we'd hoped it would. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, okay, it's, that's nice. Um, but, you know, and then there's something like, it, well, it could be better, you know. Um, you know, so it's always, it, it, it's the, um, like if we, you know, if we get a new car, a newer car, and we park it in the driveway, you know, the first night we, oh, well, that's a nice car out in the driveway. You know, there's sort of a sense of pride, and, you know, you know, maybe the neighbors will see me driving my new car, and, you know, that sense of, this made me happy. I bought this, and it made me happy. And then, you know, a few weeks later, you know, you get in the car and go to the grocery store, and you, know, you might not even remember that you had bought this car a couple of weeks ago, but if it was the car that made you happy, as long as you had the car, you'd be happy. You know, but it's not, it's not ever, ever that, right? It's not that the object has the capacity to make us happy. Right? The object is just an object. It's not trying to do anything. It's not trying to make us happy. You know, it doesn't have that goal. It's just, it's an object. Whether, whether, um, whether we 
feel happy of having it somehow in our possession field of influence um, is, is only the thoughts that we assign to it. So again, it's, it's only happening within us. Whatever our response is, it's only happening within us. It's not happening in the car. You know, the car is just the, the object of our perception, but the feeling, that feeling of, oh, I'm happy to have this car, can only happen here. It's not, not happening out there at all. Same with experience, right? Any experience. It's not the experience that causes the happiness. It's our response to whatever it is that we're experiencing. I mean, it's just like, like two people go to, I don't know, a hockey game, right? Somebody likes hockey, knows what it's about, and is enjoying the game. The rest of us go to a hockey game and, like, can't make heads or tails out of it, um, and it's not that enjoyable at all. We're bored silly. You know, same game, right? Just two different responses to it. So I was, I was once on a um, uh, retreat at um, Mount Madonna with Adi Shanti, and there, there was a, a guy that got up and spoke, and he was about my age at the time, and um, probably still is. And uh, uh, he, he told a story about how he had, um, in 1964, he had won a, an Olympic gold medal in swimming. And um, I was, when I was in high school, I was, I was big into swimming. I graduated in 1963, and, you know, I had some vague hope of, you know, competing at that level, which didn't happen. But, um, so, but anyway, I was interested in, the, in what he had to say. And what he had to say is that since that peak moment of achieving this you know, world-renowned goal after probably you know, 15 or more years of training, um, he never again experienced that level of peak happiness, which, which threw him into depression and drugs and alcohol and um, misery for the next 35 years. Yeah. So here's somebody that attained, you know, a pinnacle of, you know, what people, most people only hope for, and it still wasn't enough. It still wasn't, um, it, it wasn't fulfilling um, to be permanently fulfilling. It was like, yeah, yeah, but I'd still need something more, right? Maybe drugs, maybe alcohol, maybe who knows. So we can just see this, this movement of never enough. I mean, you can look at, um, you know, Hollywood, you know, win the Oscar, you know. And at the same time, you know, they're making their victory speech and, you know, all that love and attention and envy. And, you know, at the same time, you can see the underlying anxiety. What if my next picture's a flop? You know, where will they be then? You know, it's like, never enough, you know, always not permanent, not enough. Solution, 
more. Right? More, bigger, better. More money, more power, more fame, more, um, you know, uh, sensory excitations, more whatever. It's all the same movement. You know, we're just looking in different directions. But the, the key there is it was, it's, a, it's the movement of looking for happiness out there somewhere. And the, the longing for happiness isn't, isn't the problem. It's actually um, very instructive that there's something innate in all of us that desires um, this sense of well-being, you know, fulfillment, wholeness. Um, we're just looking in the wrong direction, right? So the, the looking is like I long for, and I know I'll find it out there somewhere. But what we can do is just recognize, no, the longing isn't bad. It's just that I'm longing for something that can't give it to me, you know? And just follow that longing back in the other direction. Where, where's the source of that longing? What is that about? And that's here, that's, that's not out there. Okay, so that, just that sense of wanting, rather than saying, well, you know, I shouldn't want anything. Um, you know, it's instructive. It's like, uh, there's the wanting, but what do I really want? You know, rather than what will satisfy me for the next five minutes or this evening or, you know, what do I really want? And touch into that. Use the same desire, but use it um, wisely. <laughs> right? So this doesn't mean that, you know, we shouldn't enjoy, you know, going out with friends, watching a movie, having a good meal, drinking a glass of wine, whatever. You know, it doesn't mean any of that. It, but it means, like, um, you know, if we're, you know, it's, it's fine to enjoy things in life. But when we're really looking at something um, ultimately satisfying, where do we look, you know? And that's the opportunity is to follow that longing back, back to its source, to see what's really, what's really being longed for. Okay, um, expecting the other person to change. Anybody ever done that one? The usual problem is the other person's doing the same thing and uh, having about as much success with it <laughs> as you are. <laughs> so there's sort of a synergy going on there. But the, 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 our, our thought process is is often, well, if the other person was just a little bit more like this, then I'd be happy. Right. Um, but the, the instructive thing is, you know, we can look at just our own, like, ordinary habits and just see how difficult those are to change in ourselves. You know, even just simple habits like, you know, exercising more, you know, eating less sweets or, 
you know, flossing her teeth after every meal, or, you know, just simple things like that, how difficult it is to discipline ourselves, to change ourselves in, in a behavior. You know, it's not easy, right? There's something, something difficult about it in ourselves, but yet we expect that we can somehow induce the other person to do that. You know, if they just change a little bit more like to my liking, then hey, things would be good. But we can see, I mean, if it's that hard to change our own habits, those, I mean, those are just easy habits, right? You know, they're more difficult ones like, you know, not being judgmental, you know. Not getting angry. I mean, they're the more challenging ones. So if, if we see how difficult that is in our own life to see through certain patterns, um, you know, we may be a little less insistent than that the other person should do that. You know, and we can also see that the expectation for the other person to change is, is really an avoidance of um, what, I, what I can reasonably do, which, which I do have control over, which is, you know, my own, looking into my own patterning. You know, so that's, that's the opportunity when we you know, when we find ourselves sort of insisting, you know, I'll be happy when the other person, you know, acts more like this. Um, and we can just see through, you know, you know sort of sub-strategies like, um, you, know, you know, trying to manipulate the other person into doing something more like this, but, or withholding affection, right? withholding love and affection until somehow carrot-like you'll induce the other person to act more like this. Not that you've ever done that, but you know, it happens sometimes. <laughs> but these are, I mean, these are just strategies, but it's again still outward looking, you know, where, where we um, assign our, um, our happiness to how another person is acting. And then, you know, our, our resolution for that is, well, I'll just get the other person to change and then, and then it'll be okay. But what we can do is um, um, look at what in ourselves requires that in order to be happy. You know, why, why is that essential to my own happiness? Um, so that we can do, that, that we do have control over. The other person, mm, not really. Okay, um, needing to be understood. I remember in my 20s, I was, um, uh, well, I was living in, in West Virginia out in the, um, the boonies, not doing too much with a few friends, and um, my dad came down to visit. My dad was a corporate type, and, and, uh, but he was willing to come down to West Virginia and spend a few days down there. But um, where, where our relationship, which had been always strained, um, got to those few days was, um, you just don't understand me. 
don't understand what I'm doing here. You don't understand how great this is. You don't understand, um, you know, that this is important, you know. You know. And the, um, the un- underlying thing is, and, which I didn't say, of course, but the underlying thing was, and I need you to. So this, this has the real potential to make a person unhappy because, again, you've assigned to the other person a demand um, a, to understand me. Right? The, the only problem is um, the only reason that anybody would demand another person understand them is that if they don't understand themselves. Right? If you understand yourself, why do you need anybody else to understand you. And, you know, you look around, the vast, vast majority of people don't understand themselves, don't know why they're doing what they do, um, you know, don't know why they're behaving or thinking the way they think. It's all just, you know, mechanical conditioning, acting uh, without really knowing why. And so if, if I don't understand myself and the other person doesn't understand themselves, what's to be gained by demanding that they understand me? I mean, it, even if, I mean, there's, no, there's just no point in it. There's no ability in the other person, any other person, to understand another person completely. I mean, even, even if you've lived with another person, I mean, you might be very familiar with their patterns and habits and, you know, what they'll do under a particular situation, but there's something that still remains that's totally mysterious. Is that not true? I mean, where you don't, you, 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 um, you don't yet feel like, you know, you can just know everything about the person, not, not just their story and everything, but just, just the mystery of being with another being and, and even in close contact for a long period of time, it's like there's still mystery there, right? You know, the only time there, there's not a mystery there is when we've just conceptualized everything, you know, put the other person in a box, a category, we know what they are, who, you know, what they believe, and that's the end of the story. But if we've done that, we've reduced, you know, a real live manifestation of life into a concept and that concept will always be less than the reality of who the other person is. So this whole, you know, demanding that some other person will understand me, this is something I think is, um, you know, particularly as we're growing up and trying to, you know, break free of our parent or parents and um, establish our own identity. Um, We want to break free, but we sort of want their respect and acceptance and understanding of what I am, even though I've sort of broken away somewhat. So somehow, as, as much as we want to create our own identity, you know, we're still sort of dependent to some extent on their love and approval. And but just this, um, you know, we can just see that demand um, is uh, well, can't be fulfilled, right? The demand that somebody else understand me. 
just cannot be fulfilled. They don't have that capacity to do it. And the only reason that we're insisting on it is because we don't know who we are ourselves. So we can just um, look at that. (laughs) You know, the resolution is to find out what we really are, and then then it's uh, resolved. Okay, um, wanting to be loved. I mean, this one sounds totally reasonable, right? You know, what, what could be more life-affirming than wanting to be loved? But the, I mean, the wanting to be loved puts, puts the love out there somewhere. I mean, this, this is the basis of, you know, all romantic comedies, you know, somehow the the fulfillment, my happiness, my um, life uh, is dependent on whether the other person loves me or not. Whether that, that's, that's coming back towards me. You know, so again, we've you know, sort of parked our um, happiness in the whims of the other person. You know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. <laughs> Basis of every romantic comedy, right? Will she, won't she? No, she will, yeah. We all know that. (laughs) But that's, the issue is that there's something that we feel like we're lacking in ourselves um, that we think the other person has and that without their love towards me, um, that lack won't ever be fulfilled, right? You know, so we can, you know, sort of juice up that need like, um, you know, I just, I, 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 I need, if I don't, if I don't, um, um, you know, end up with this, this person in this relationship, you know, my life will be over. Or maybe I've been in this relationship and now it's not and, you know, I'll never be happy again. You know, so again, it's still assigning that uh, source of happiness to some outside, um, outside source, okay. Lacking here, present there, um, what do I have to do to, to get that directed my way? So there's this, you can sort of sense into that sense of neediness, right? Like, you know, how do I have to present myself? How do I have to um, appear? How do, what do I have to do in order to gain, gain that for myself to fulfill this? I'm empty here, it's, it's present there. I can't just outright demand it, so I have to sort of <laughs> use these different strategies to try to pull that person's love into my field. But if if there's a sense of neediness here, um, almost always there's the same sense of neediness in the other person, right? Somebody that was, um, you know, felt um, complete, content, at ease, um, okay with being alone, but not out of rejection, just um, content. 
They're, they're not approaching a you know, another person or relationship with a neediness. It's just, you know, if, uh, if there's also, um, you know, just th that inner sense of peace and contentedness and the other person, then it's quite attractive, right? You know, you, you can sense if somebody needs something, right? Needs something from you, like an, I don't know, nobody's an insurance salesman here, right? So, but that, that sense of like, you know, you're having a conversation and then suddenly, you know, he's checking me out, you know, like, <laughs> seeing if I need some car insurance. <laughs> you know, that, just that level of neediness, um, it just isn't all that attractive. The only, the only person that it would attract is someone equally needy, like, okay, I'll love you if you love me, and as long as we play that game to each other's satisfaction, it's okay, but, you know, if I feel like you're wobbling, I'm out of here, you know, either physically or psychologically. You know, so there's that tension that can be there. Um, but if, if, if we feel like contented in our own being and someone else, the same, it's, it's lovely, right? Because then there's just a genuine sharing. It's not, it's not out of neediness, it's out of a joy, it's out of, um, um, you know, just a, a friendliness, a, a joy in, you know, exploring life together. It's a, it's a whole different field. So even though that, that movement of wanting love is natural, it's, again, um, you know, where, where are we looking uh, to fulfill that? If, if we put that expectation on the other person, sooner or later, that other person um, will, not, um, will not be enough to fill that void. You know, unless we fill it ourselves, you know, to recognize what we are essentially, then, then there can be a sharing. Yeah. Okay, we're moving right along here. There's, there's a lot more we could say about any one of these things, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Okay, um, uh, regret. Okay. Regret um, has to do with, you know, things that we did, you know, maybe yesterday, maybe 20 years ago, um, that uh, haven't been resolved. You often hear people say that, um, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done that. Right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, hopefully, right? Hopefully you've learned something in the last 20 years. And, um, but we somehow apply some standard that we've, um, you know, either, you know, heard or believed or learned, you know, over those years and applied it to something that happened maybe a long time ago. Um, and then we come up with, I, I shouldn't have done it, it happened, it's in the past, I can't change it, and therefore, all I, all I can do is regret it. 
nowhere to go with it. You know, I can't undo it. Um, you know, that's what we're left with. And it, it, the, um, uh, the regret actually blinds us to the opportunity to really see through it. You know, because it fixes it in place. It's like, this is what happened, um, and re regret sort of uh, puts it in a box of how, how I'm gonna feel about it, and um, I can't change it. That's what happened. Um, I can't undo it, and therefore, it's, I'm condemned somehow for the rest of my life, you know, carrying around this regret. Right. You know, so I'm guessing we've all done things in the past that, you know, we wouldn't do today. Okay, I'll raise my hand. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, naturally, I mean, this is, this is actually how we learn, right? The idea, um, uh, you know, religion notwithstanding, the idea of this lifetime isn't to live flawlessly, you know? You know, if, if we're, you know, if, if our standard is never to make a mistake, um, you know, it's, um, it's, an, it's, well, it's just an unreasonable standard. So it, it feels like, um, you know, that sort of superego higher self is the one that's holding us to some standard and that, you know, our unruly self is, you know, not quite measuring up. And we feel like, um, uh, well, at least, at least I've got my standards, you know. You know, but I impose them on myself and then feel guilty or regretful or whatever. But they're both, they're both concepts, right? You know, this higher, higher standard, some idealized self. Um, you know, where did that come from? You know, is that really the standard? You know, it's just, it's some belief that we feel like that's, that's what I, I should, should have done and this is what I actually did. But that, I mean, it's actually how we, how we learn. I mean, it's how we learn to walk. You know, we didn't get up and run across the room the first time we tried it, you know. You know, we fell down dozens and dozens of times um, before we learned to do it. You know, and we've made mistakes in relationships. We've made uh, mistakes in, you know, what we've said to other people. We've made mistakes in, I don't know, all kinds of things, self-honesty. I mean, all kinds of things. But the, the question is, you know, if we sense into how we felt afterwards and realized again from the sense of contraction, aha, there's something there that I need to pay attention to because I don't like what this feels like. You know, so the body in some sense is a very good, you know, indicator. You know, the body feels contracted, the mind feels contracted. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's not wrong, right? The problem isn't the contraction. 
The, problem, the contraction's actually pointing back to something that didn't feel quite right, something that our deeper nature knew, yeah, that wasn't quite right. You know, so the contraction's actually a useful function, sort of like, you know, you hit your toe, it hurts, and it's look, oh yeah, there's a rock there, you know, I've got to pay more attention. You know, so it's, the, the pain draws our attention to the situation. So this idea of regret is just, it just conceptualizes a, an event. We repeat it in our mind again and again. You know, we usually amplify it, you know, all the things that, you know, I should have done or they should have done, you know, all the nuances. You know, all of that just locks it into place more and more firmly. You know, it gives it a reality that, um, but it also prevents us from actually seeing our own role in it, what, what, we, what we can learn from the situation. So, um, you know, re- regret sort of prevents us from um, actually looking at things. It actually perpetuates our suffering, right? Just because it prevents us from actually investigating, you know, my role and how I ended up in a situation that I now regret. Um, Mr. Gadada has this phrase that um, um, karma is the indifference to our own suffering. Yeah, we don't quite care enough to really look at it, so we go on suffering. And uh, Byron Katie says a very similar thing. Um, he says, uh, karma is just an unexplored belief. Some belief that we haven't really looked at thoroughly, so we go on acting out of that. The results are similar, and that's called karma, you know. Okay, um, about um, waiting for the world to change. You know, it's like, I mean, we can all come up with ways that we'd like the world to be different, um, you know, more to our liking. But when we really look at the world, I mean, it's not, it's not like the river's a problem, or trees are a problem, birds are a problem. You know, when we look at things that, are, that we see as dysfunctional in the world, they're all man-made. You know, na- nature, I mean, there, there can be some violent stuff happening in nature, but we don't, we don't say that lion shouldn't be doing what it's doing. You know, it's just sort of the nature of things. Um, but when we look at the dysfunctionality of the world, um, you know, all, all, all man-made, you know, you know, degradation of our food supply, um, you know, warring nations, racism, um, um, you know, greed, um, degradation of the environment, elimination of thousands of species, 
I mean, all climate change, all of that is driven by, um, by people, just adds up, you know, adds up in a way that um, the result is what it looks like now. So that, but the source of it is, isn't, um, well, the source of it is this, um, on an individual basis, it's the sense of separate self. I am separate from all of that. Um, you know, I have these needs, this want, you know, to fulfill something in myself, and therefore, um, you know, I need more stuff to fulfill that. I need more power. I need more money. I need more control. I need all of that. And the consequence is the issues in the world. You know, so we can try to resolve it on, um, you know, sort of the world level, you know, as long as we know we're dealing with symptoms, not causes, that's fine. Um, but even, even then, um, we need to be careful. So it's, it's fine to go out and, you know, try to make the world a better place. Um, but it, uh, it's worthy of some caution there. I mean, there have been probably um, more people killed in the name of making the world a better place than all other causes over history. There's um, the Spanish Inquisition went on unbelievably for 350 years. Killed tens of, burned at the stake tens of thousands of people in order to save their souls, right? Doing it for their own good. So, um, you know, political ideologies, you know, superior races, you know, all that, all that kind of um, justification um, causes unbelievable harm. So, I mean, we can, we can look at trying to fix things on sort of a world scale. I mean, we can elect politicians, we can pass laws, you know, you know empires can come and go all of that, but as long as um, we as humanity continue to believe that what we are individually is a separate person, um, we still haven't got to the root of it. You know, we're still dealing with symptoms, not the cause, you know. So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't go out and do what we can, but even then it's, um, it's a delicate thing, you know, where are we coming from when we do that? You know, are we coming from a um, compassionate place or are we, are we coming from a place that I'm right and they're wrong? You know, if we're coming from a place I'm right and they're wrong, I know better, even though I'm trying to help them, then we're still adding to the division energetically. You know, if we're coming from a place of, um, you know, doing what we can, um, 
you know, out of our own sense of abundance and peace and um, connection with other people, and it looks different, feels different. You know, it's like the, um, you know, Somebody goes over to Africa to feed the hungry people, but they're doing it out of um, a sense of um, righteousness or superiority or, um, you know, it'll look good on my resume or whatever. You know, if there's a, a motivate, any kind of motivation that involves, um, you know, personal gain, however subtle, um, it has unintended consequences. You know, if, it, if it's coming from a place of genuine compassion and outpouring and out of a feeling of um, abundance, has a different feel. Might look the same on the outside, but it has a different feel to it. So it's just, um, um, you know, if we wait for the world to change, to align itself with our um, what would make us happy. We've just postponed our happiness, right? We're going to wait for a very, very long time. If we're waiting for the world to change, to become an in, li- in, li- in alignment with my preferences, we'll just wait for a really, really, really long time. You know, the, the corollary of that is that um, the condition of the world is Um, preventing my happiness, right? If the world wasn't the way it was, I would be happy. Things would change out there, then I would be happy here. But it's still the same game, right? We're still putting the source of happiness or unhappiness out there. So it's it's sort of transactional, you know? If something... um, that I like happens out in the world, then I feel happy. If something happens um, that I don't like, I feel unhappy. So the, again, we've assigned the source of happiness to the outside events. It's gonna go this way sometimes, that way, and some other times, and um, I'm just like a you know, leaf in the wind. You know, whatever happens, that happens. The other thing to consider is, um, are you certain that the world just as it is is not the perfect setup for our own awakening? You know, if it's all just nice, easy, it's always 75 degrees and sunny, it wasn't cold and frosty first thing in the morning, Everything always went our way. There'd there'd be no motivation to do anything different, right? Look at anything different. You know, it's really, um, it's really the friction that um, causes a certain discomfort in a sense, and it's the discomfort that um, causes us to look more deeply. You know, it's not just, 
You know, we, we like to think like, well, if it was just all blissful, then of course I'd be enlightened, right? It's, it's actually not what awakening is. It's not just like all blissful. It's like seeing that what we are is <coughs> bigger than both bliss and conflict. You know, bigger than joy and contraction. It's it both. All of that happens within this awareness that we are. You know, doesn't mean that we, you know, don't prefer one over the other. Doesn't mean that we don't um, support these activities more than those activities. Doesn't mean that at all. But it means that we're free from being. Um, blown about by life circumstances. You know, so rather than waiting for life to come into alignment with my preferences, which not going to happen, um, we can allow our preferences to just relax to the point that um, we might still prefer this over that, sure, but we're okay with either. You know, either one doesn't throw us for a loop. You know, again, it doesn't mean that we don't take action, but we don't take action from a sense of reactivity. We take action out of, yes, that's happening. Here's what I can do. Here's what I, um, I'm capable of doing. I'll, I'll act in this situation and Some other situation, I don't have the capacity to do. You know, I'm not, it doesn't benefit anybody from being anxious about that. So that's what we can do. You know, we can respond as we have the ability to respond and. Um, not be quite so certain that um, the world is other than it should be. A little chaotic at the moment, but not necessarily. Um, we shouldn't put ourselves in a position of saying it shouldn't be like that, right? You know, sometimes it takes a certain um, level of disturbance to rearrange things. All right, last but not least, one of the causes of unhappiness is seeking happiness. <laughs> you wouldn't think it, right? <laughs> so we only seek what we feel is not present. You know, sometimes if you meet, um, you know, a person is sort of genuinely happy, you know, for not any particular reason, not because they just won the lottery or, you know, just, just sort of a sunny personality. 
you know, we, we, we can sort of assume that, well, that's sort of just their DNA or something, you know, it's sort of something they were born with and, you know, good for them. But I, I'd suggest that it's more just a, a person's perspective on life, you know, that um, they're, not, they're not putting a demand on life to be a certain way in order to be happy. You know, again, they, they might prefer this or that, but e- either way, um, they're, they're, they're okay with it. You know, and it, it actually, you know, when we're not um, sort of squandering our time and energy in reactivity to what's, what's happening, we have that much more time and energy to actually um, respond in um, a way that is more joyful ourselves, um, you know, more joyful when we're interacting with other people. Um, you know, if we're, if we're wasting all our time and energy sort of wanting things to be different, being anxious, um, being resentful, all, all of those things, it just um, doesn't leave much, much left, <laughs> you know, to actually be present, to respond to whatever the situation calls for. You know, not out of any ideology, but just out of what the situation calls for. What, in that moment, what is the highest and best um, response that I can make for the good of everyone involved in, in that situation? You know, not what's in it for me necessarily. You know, it can be, we don't have to win every round. You know. So just this movement of believing that somehow um, happiness is based on some object out, outside of ourself, um, that that is where happiness resides, um, is just simply not true. It's, it's very similar to what we did in the meditation this morning where we just looked at perceptions and realized that those perceptions are happening within us and how we interpret those perceptions happens within us. It's not in the object themselves. You know? You know, the object themselves doesn't, doesn't have, have the power to make us feel one way or the other. Um, you know, we, we alone have that power. That's, that's the good news, actually, that that power resides wholly within us. What, what perspective are we seeing that from? And so just this movement of seeking outside of ourselves for something that will um, satisfy or fulfill us, uh, just seeing that it never will. It's, I mean, it's a promise that's never kept. It will... Um, it doesn't, the objects outside of ourselves are not, um, they're not actually ever experienced outside of ourselves. That entire experience happens within us. 
happens within what we are. And we can choose how we react to that or not. And when we realize that we don't have to react to every situation, you know, we can respond when appropriate. That's, that's the freedom. And that is within our power. So we don't have the, most of us, nearly all of us, you know, don't change the, you know, directions of history on a grand scale, but we do have the power to transform ourselves, um, to realize what we are already, essentially, and that is, um, it's freeing, it's liberating, you know, um, but it's also uh, the most beneficial thing that we can do for the world. <laughs> I mean, the fr our first obligation, um, before we even try to fix the world, is first do no evil, <laughs> right? First do no harm. <laughs> then we can talk about fixing things, right? So, um, yeah, so that, that whole journey to um, self-discovery, discovering what we are already, can feel very personal, like I'm, I'm doing it for myself, I'm doing it for my own peace of mind, my own joy. But um, what we come to realize, it's not actually about that at all, you know. Well, for one thing, there's no separate self. That's one of the things that we discover along the way. There is life being expressed through this unique form. That's true. Um, but that, that life is, is who we are, um, but it's not who we are as a separate self. It's not personal in that way. It's also not impersonal, right? It's not some outside entity that's gonna come and invade our bodies, you know, like some horror film. You know, it's who we are already. It's just the realization that it's much bigger than we thought it was. You know, it, it is actually the entirety of life that's living through each one of these human forms. You know, it feels personal here because that's the mechanism that we have that's looking. <laughs> but the, the life energy itself is, isn't. It's not also not other than us. So that's actually why Ramana could refer to it as self with a capital S. It's a little confusing, right? Because then there's the personal self with a little less. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's just, it's not some external, you know, supernatural force that's in, you know, suddenly invades and comes through these bodies. It's always, it, it's always been life that's been living these bodies. It's just um, dropping the um, misperception that what I am is separate. That's, that's, that's the only thing that changes. But that, 
change in perspective changes everything.